Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 27th, 2020, we continue our series titled, The Ideal, a study in Colossians. Today's sermon, The Ideal Unity, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Enjoy. Well, at the beginning of chapter 2 here, Paul is going to declare his care and his concern for the church and his desire for them to be committed to each other and to Christ. In fact, look at the first verse here before we read the whole thing. Verse one, he says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So Paul begins here by saying that he's struggling for them. In fact, he uses this Greek word agon. It's where we get our English word agony. He's saying, I am agonizing for you, over you. Remember, the context here is that Paul is in prison when he writes this, so this isn't a physical agony. This is a spiritual agony. In fact, keep your finger here and go over to chapter four and look at verse 12 because it'll sort of prove the point here. If you get to verse 12 in chapter four, he starts off talking about Epaphras. Epaphras is someone that's serving alongside of him. He says, verse 12, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, in other words, he's from Colossae, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. So he's talking about him struggling, spiritually. So when is prayer a struggle? When is it agony? You know, again, as I thought about it this week, it's when someone that we love and we care about is in a battle. For example, if you're a parent here, you'll probably get this one when it has to do with our kids. That's when it's a struggle. For example, if I look at my kid's life and I say, well, one of them is maybe going down a path that I look and see, because of my experience, I see danger down the road for this. That's not an easy time to pray. Or maybe that their their faith is silver all over the place and they sort of mixed it in with the world's philosophy. That becomes a difficult time. Or or maybe they're just simply walking away from their faith and they're questioning things out loud like do I even believe in all of this because they've heard someone else say it? Those are difficult moments. Or maybe your marriage is in trouble. You really don't even know what to do next. Or you've been to the doctor and the doctor sort of gives you the long face because something's wrong. Maybe you're just afraid. It's not hard to look at our world right now and see how divided we are as a nation and be afraid. Those are not fleeting moments in prayer. Those are not, oh God bless me and do this. Those are the moments that we're down on our knees going, I don't even know what to say, God. What do I do? What do I do? Could you please fix this? Paul tells us even what this looks like in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. He says, so apart from the other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Verse 29, who is weak and I'm not weak, he says. Who is made to fall and I am not indignant. That's agonizing in prayer. Paul here is concerned that the Colossians would begin to compromise in their faith or that they would have a relapse back to their former self and buying into all the philosophies of the world or they would just become idle and stagnant in their faith. 
In fact, it's so interesting, I don't know if you noticed there in verse one, did you notice that Paul mentioned another city there, the city of Laodicea? Laodicea is, an, is a, another city that's in the Lycus Valley there. It's about 11 miles away from Colossae. Now that doesn't sound like much to us because we jump in a car and go, but 11 miles back then was another world. This is not just mentioned just as a throw-in. You say, well, what do we know about Laodicea? Well, Laodicea was infamous as one of the churches that's mentioned in Revelation chapter three as the place that Jesus stopped and as he observed them, he said, you're lukewarm. And as a result of you being lukewarm, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. You see, they lacked passion. They didn't see that they had any needs. The church looked at themselves at that point and thought, well, you know, we've got everything we want, which tells me they were probably a wealthy church because the people personally didn't think they had any needs. But even beyond that, they didn't seem to be into the needs of other people. They didn't see the others having needs. So they easily became lukewarm. When you've got everything you want, it's easy to compromise. It's easy to become stagnant in faith. And so what Paul's going to do here is, between verses two and verse seven, is he's going to give five ways to keep and to build unity within the church. Now, let me read this, and I'll start again in verse one so that we can get this in context. He says, for I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the fullness of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, again, between verses two and seven, he's gonna give us five ways to keep and build the unity in the church. The first thing he's gonna tell us here in verse, verse two, the beginning there, is encouragement. Again, he says that their hearts may be encouraged. And he uses the Greek word parakaleo. Parakaleo means to come alongside someone. But what's so interesting here is this same word here, the noun of this same word is the word helper. Does that sound familiar to you at all? I mean, think back when Jesus in John chapter 17 began to talk about him going away and he says, if I don't go away, the helper, how we returned, how we talked about the Holy Spirit, the helper will not come. Now, that's a pretty important thing here. You see, what he's saying here is he's saying we are supposed to as believers, you ought to come alongside someone to build them up, to encourage them, similar to how God's spirit works. In fact, you might be, even be used by God's spirit to be the one that come alongside and encourage, to care, to notice. It's one of the chief reasons why in the church, you know, you hear us talking a lot about getting involved in a small group because, you know, it's really the only way that you and I are gonna know what's going on in each other's lives. Amen. If someone actually knows you and knows what you're going through, they get a chance to walk with you through those moments of life. Yes. When for someone to do that and go, oh, I don't know, it's a lot of hassle, it's worth it. 
Maybe it's just to pray for them. Encouragement builds unity. But he's gonna take off on that. He's gonna give them a second way they would build unity. Again, it's in in verse two here. And he says that their hearts may be encouraged. And the second one is being knit together in love. Knit together in agape. That's the word he uses, God's love. Agape here being the binding force. You know, knit together too is the idea that you would make something out of nothing. Now, I'm not a knitter. Uh, I mean, if you are, God bless you. I think guys sort of accomplish the same thing when they go fishing at times. You know, it's just something to get their mind on something else. But, but you know, I mean, it's knitting here in this case is just a little bit different. I, I really tried to figure it out, so I got some lumps, you know, of, of yarn, and I put them together, and I just let them sit there. I had three lumps of yarn, and as I'm looking at these lumps, I'm realizing to myself, I have no idea what to do with these, and I have no idea what they would be good for. I was thinking maybe you could stuff them in something and make like a pillow or something like that, and yet someone that knows what they're doing knitting-wise can take those things and turn them into something beautiful. Whether it's a sweater or, or, or you know, maybe even a throw rug or, or a scarf or something like that, they know exactly what to do with that. Believers, that's supposed to be us. We are to be knit together in love, and we can be. Agape is not circumstantial. Agape love is not I love you if. Well, if these people are really nice to me and they all accept me and they all make sure they talk to me, well, then I will love them. That's not the point. Agape loves happens as a result of a change of heart, a change of values. I was 14 years old when I received Christ. I had this weird thing, I don't know why, no one told me you should go to church. I went to church, you know what? I didn't like the music. It was like 30 years old for me at the time. I mean, and by the way, every generation comes along and changes the music, that's just life and get over it, you know? I mean, so, but I mean, I remember not thinking, I don't like the music and, and it doesn't really fit who, where I'm going and what I, what I wanted to do and, and they dressed, you know, they wore ties. I mean, that was weird. I mean, I don't wear a tie and, and, and these people, they would say things to me like brother and I'm like, I'm not your brother. I mean, it was, everything inside of me would say, why are you there? Except one thing inside of me was saying, this is where you're supposed to be. This is your family. Everything changes at salvation. This love, it binds us together so that the church can actually act like the church. And people notice that. Again, Jesus' words in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our hearts should be knit together. Why? Why? Well, verse two, if you keep on going here, we'll tell you why it needs to be knit together. It says, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Let me read that one more time, because that sounds hard to get. To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Translated means this. The deepest, the most intellectual thoughts about God are going to come from people who have loving hearts. They're going to come from people whose hearts are knit together. You are going to get God 
in ways you never thought of as God puts you in the middle of a body and you begin to love them and they love you and all of a sudden, bells are gonna go off, you're gonna start getting it. It's different. It doesn't make any worldly sense. The more we love each other, the greater the possibility that we will think like God. Love for the church matters. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, tells us that Jesus loved the church so much that he died for her. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, Paul reminds us that we are to love the church like you were to love your spouse. When a church's love for each other grows, the church grows. But when the church's love grows cold like the church in Laodicea did, the church grows cold. Now there's a third way we build the body up. Again, there's a lot here in verse two. It starts off here, and let me just read verses two and three. It says that their hearts may be knit together being, uh, and be encouraged may be knit together to lo- in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The full assurance of understanding, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In other words, that we would be settled in what we believe. The Gnostics, would look at the things that we teach in the church, the things that were taught then, the, thought, the, the things that the apostles taught at that point, and they thought it was foolishness. Complete foolishness. And yet Paul here in verse three tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The, 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 the Gnostics taught that there was secret knowledge in, in hidden places. You had to go find it. You gotta search out and hunt and sacrifice and do all those things to go out and find God. Go on a pilgrimage. You gotta do all those things. That's how you're gonna find God. But Paul here is aiming clearly at them and their teaching when he says that all knowledge is in Christ. You don't have to hunt any further than to find Christ and then God will begin to open up the door for you to understand all these things. You see, it's in Christ that I see the Father. It's in Christ that I realize salvation. It's in Christ that I experience forgiveness. It's in Christ that I have a brand new life. And 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's passed away, behold, the new has come. You're a brand new creation, a brand new life. It's in Christ that we learn to love each other and live as redeemed people, but you have to be in him to receive this understanding. Do you realize what that means? It means that the treasure is hidden from those whose hearts are closed to Christ. The world doesn't get it. That's why so often the world will look at you, I don't know why you're there. Now why does Paul say this? Look at verse four. He says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So his immediate concern is they would be, keep them from being deceived. And many people were deceived back then and they are now as well. Paul warns the church that the Gnostics were out to divide the church and deceive people by using plausible arguments. Plausible simply means that their whole point was just to sound reasonable. We get that today. 
And if you think about some of the humanistic arguments that are, that are out sort of to focus in on, just sounding reasonable, let me give you a perfect example. Someone will come along and say, well, you know, that's fine for you. That may be true for you, but it's not true for me. Now, if you say that in a soft enough voice, a kind enough voice, it kind of sounds reasonable. But if you really think through what's being said there, what you're saying is, well, there is no, you know, there is no absolute truth then. There is no one that would come along and say, no, that's wrong or that's right. No final authority. I mean, that goes against everything as a Christian that I would believe, everything that the scriptures teach. By the way, you know when that all started? In Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve in the garden, the serpent looks at them and he says, has God really said that you can't eat from anything in the garden? Now first of all, he quotes it wrong. Because God never said that. God said you can have everything you want in the garden except for the fruit of one tree. That's all. Everything else you can have but that one tree. No, you can't have that one. So he's automatically quoting all, but if you read it, what you realize is the context is he's trying to show how unreasonable God really is. You know, what, what scares me about this so much is this is probably the most dangerous attack on young people today that there really is. When you get to my age, it's... it's, it's it's much harder for me to accept something like that because I didn't grow up in that world. But the world today is pressing this whole idea of just be reasonable. There doesn't have to be one truth. Well, there does if you trust in Christ. Paul seems to be worried that they will get caught up in the philosophical arguments here. That the only way to keep them from being deceived is to stay close to Christ, to run everything through the scriptures and get a biblical worldview. In other words, read things and think things through and hear things all through a lens that would tell you this is, that our God is in control. Maybe that means turning off the things that manipulate and, and deceive us like social media. Look at verse five. He says, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul tells us that through prayer, he feels united with the brothers and sisters in Colossae, and he uses this term, good order. It's a military term here for keeping the lines intact. And I was trying to think, how am I gonna explain this? You know, so I'll go back to my, my, my fallback here. Anybody seen the movie Gladiator? Okay. There's a scene in Gladiator, I don't know if you remember it, but it's very early on when they're up in the Germanic territories and they're getting ready to, to attack this army that's down below and all the soldiers are up on their horses right there and they slowly start going down the mountain as they're going, they start gathering speed and, and going a little bit faster and Maximus, you know, the general, he yells out at that time, hold the line. Well, what's he mean? What he means is Keep the enemy in front of you. Don't let the enemy get in the middle or behind us because it's a little harder to fight with one weapon that only goes forward. That's, that's true for churches. That's one of the main reasons why we have to be careful to allow plausible arguments to come in and get mixed up with good biblical truth. 
because we don't want to have lines all over the place. The church needs to hold the line and not let the battle become confusing for us. Now, there's a fourth way that we can build unity here. Look at verse six. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. We need to be here consistent in faith. Consistent in faith. It's not enough to simply believe. God wants us to grow. That's what Paul means here by walking in him. Your walk speaks about how you live your daily life. It's the daily conduct of believing and being led by God's spirit. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6 tells us that whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Galatians 5, 16 says, but I say walk by the spirit and you may not gratify the desires of the flesh. So we need to learn how to be consistent. Then there's a fifth way. The fifth way here in verse 7 that we can build our unity is to be thankful. Verse seven says this, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now what's interesting here is that Paul's gonna summarize here at the very beginning of verse seven, the way believers should live by using four participles, rooted, built up, established, those all have to do with growth. You say, well why should he talk about growth here? Well. It's pretty important because, I mean, you, like you'll hear us talk a lot about taking your next step. We don't do that just so that we can put your name on a list and, and you know, pat ourselves on the back because you've done that. Because see, spiritually, we know that you're either going forward or you're going backwards. So many people think, well, I'm just in a neutral stage. No, you're not. The world is moving still. We need to be growing. That's why the, it was always challenging them to be growing as a group of people. And so, you know, we've you know, simplified down to, to a simple thing. You know, we just said, look, our next step is simple. Come to church on a regular basis. Participate in worship. You know, get into the teaching a little bit. God will grow you. But then there's a step beyond that. You need to connect into a small group of people because that will be even a greater step of discipleship than that first part will. The first part is you're gonna be challenged with God's word, but then the discipleship step will go further because now you're gonna have to open yourself up to people. And then finally it says, you know, then we want you to serve. Well, that's even a bigger step of discipleship. And then the fourth part of that whole next step thing is make disciples. In other words, help somebody else on that same path. Because it's important that we grow. But then Paul adds to the end of that, abounding in thanksgiving. You know, being thankful is actually the opposite of what the Gnostics taught. They thought, why should, I, why should I be thankful for what I discovered? Why should I be thankful for what I earned? That's not us. As believers, we understand that we didn't earn or discover anything. That we ought to be thankful. That's why we praise God, because he's been so good to us. He's extended his mercy to us. You know, I'm gonna ask the worship team if they will come and join me. And this morning we're gonna be taking communion. Mark mentioned that earlier. And I wanna encourage you, if you don't have one of these, you could just slip your hand up. There will be someone that will come through and give you one so that you can participate as well. But while you're doing that, let me encourage you. Paul writes this because he wants the church to love each other to be unified together. So my question is, do you love the church?
The truth is it cannot be hidden. And it's not just a private thing. I hear people say that all the time. Well, you know, my relationship with Jesus is private and therefore, you know, church is a private thing. No, it's not. John 13, Jesus said the whole world will see. This is how they will notice. It's as public as it gets. Look, you can't say I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And if you said to me, Bob, you know, I love you. I just don't care for your wife a lot. I'm going to be honest with you. You and I wouldn't be friends. So why would you expect that to be different from Jesus? Jesus, I love you. I just don't care for your bride. The problem is not with Jesus. The problem is with you. This morning is a chance for us to remember Jesus' body being broken, his blood being shed for us, the church, that he would go to the cross and die for us, his bride. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, when Paul is giving instructions about taking communion, he pauses and he says, make sure you examine yourself. Make sure your heart is right before you do this. I want to encourage you that you need to answer two questions. Number one, are you right with Jesus? That's the first one. Are there things between you and him that need to, need to be changed? Do you need to repent? Because it's never him that needs to change. The second thing is this, are you right with his bride? Are you right with the church? Have you played your part in it? Have you loved God's people? Have you encouraged them? Have you walked alongside of them? Have you prayed for them? Have you gone out of your way to meet them and, 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 and spread a little bit of kindness and love to them and build them up? Have you played your part in the family? Would you take a minute right where you're at and just do some business with the Lord right there? Jesus are you right with his bride the cup the cup here has two sections if you peel back the first part you're going to see a little wafer that's the bread under that, you peel back the second part and you'll see the juice. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 
tells us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he passed it out to his disciples. He said, this bread is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. next verse in verse 24 Jesus tells us that after supper he took a cup and he passed it around he said this cup represents the new covenant in my blood do this in remembrance of me would you pray with me Father I pray that you would help us to love you above and beyond all things, God. Nothing is even close. You are preeminent in front of all. But then, Father, would you help us to learn to love others? Would you help us to learn to love your bride, the church? Father, so that the world might know that we follow you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The world is divided and everybody knows it. We don't only have to turn our TV on every single day or get online and you'll find the division that's there and it's pure hatred. That's not supposed to be us. We're called to be united. And the world should look and see something that they desperately desire, something that they want, that is beyond what you can do in this life, that has to have a change spiritually that changes lives. But brothers and sisters, unity is fragile. It requires that we be committed to it. But I want to encourage you, unity is also effective because you will grow You'll get strong in your faith. The church will grow. You will have deeper thoughts on the character of God than you've ever been. That's my prayer for you guys. I love you all. God bless you.